Crime Conversations bring together the biggest names in true crime, recorded live at CrimeCon London 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk. How's everyone doing tonight? All right. <laughs> do, do you need to introduce yourself now? No, I'm not going to introduce myself. <laughs> no, the thing about coming here, just sit back. And first of all, you know, earlier session, as a middle-aged man, you get a, an hour to speak about yourself. And I thought, well, that sounds like a first date, doesn't it? You know. And, but now, um, no, uh, no, I, I'm, um, I'm Donald McIntyre. I'm an investigative reporter and sometime presenter and on uh, satellite channel, channels on uh, all matters crime at all. Yeah. yeah, I've actually checked some of that out. Very good. I think uh, uh, most known, I mean, the audience, well, it's kind of hard to know. Some of them will know some of my earlier work undercover, and some of them won't have been born. Yeah, uh, I heard uh, you like, after that. you infiltrate like violent gangs and uh, and then confront people yeah, so <laughs> that apart, you probably shouldn't be confronting. Well, apart from my own family, which, uh, no, uh, the, uh, no, I have, uh, I started off as an investigative reporter in the very traditional American sense, you know, yeah. uh, you always began thinking all, all the president's men, Robert Redford and all of this stuff. And uh, when I went undercover, it was an accidental, I was a canoeist and a journalist, and uh, four children died in a Lime Bay canoe disaster, and then they wanted somebody to go undercover, and so they dragged me undercover to do that, and that was the start of my undercover uh, work, and then I did drug gangs, um, football hooligans, arms traffickers. Football traffic hooligans. Football hooligans, yes, yeah. It was kind of, you know the movie Green Street? Well, I, kind of, I did the kind of real version of Green Street, and uh, people always ask me, they always say, uh, when I'm abroad and swimming, they always say, uh, do you support Chelsea? Because I had to get a Chelsea tattoo to go undercover. And I always say, no. I said, well, why do you have the Chelsea tattoo? And I said, it's a long story. <laughs> but among the other, uh, I did, went undercover in the world of fashion. I took some of the worst photographs ever behind stage of Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss. And <laughs> Donald Trump, it has to be said. Yeah. And when I was photographing Donald Trump, I was being filmed photographing Donald Trump as the pretend photographer. No there was no film in my camera. Right? And I was fumbling, just trying to elongate the engagement. This is in 1999, and mm. it's a Milan fashion show. And he was saying, come on, come on, hurry up. And I was there with a silly camera. There's no camera in it. Anyway. So you don't feel guilty for wasting his time. wasting his time. <laughs> for the younger crowd, we used to have this thing called film. And he would have to <laughs> advance it. Or don't create ghosts. Yeah. So when, when, uh, in the world of fashion, the secret to a good photograph is, first of all, take over 100 photographs. Secondly, don't actually look in the lens because any kind of random precision, this is my, just press the button randomly and uh, black and white, 400 ASA, then you're bound to get one good shot out of a 1,000. And uh, so that was my camouflage in the vacuous world of fashion. Yeah. And now I'm in the vacuous world of journalism and podcasters. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is you're talking about you infiltrate gangs, but then you have this Chelsea tattoo. That seems like the most dangerous move you've made. Well, <laughs> no, I've seen it. I, yeah. we, you know, we went out last night and yeah. someone had to make sure that their football jersey was covered up. I'm not naming names. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. We, uh, no, I've kind of, I think the most dangerous stuff I ever did was I was buying um, arms in Kosovo and we were we, we did this thing called McIntyre's Millions where we decided 
if you had as, um, if you had a mil- million pounds, could you buy whatever you wanted? You know, illegal uh, arms. You could uh, traffic in uh, in uh, drugs. In another program, we 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 actually uh, I opened a brothel not too far away in Camden for the BBC, and we actually bought uh, you know um, um, Russian prostitutes who were being sold to us by trafficking gangs, and we bought them for. Uh, <coughs> I think it was seven thousand pounds a piece. We got them at a discount. You know, if you bought them individually, they were ten thousand. You're pounds. buying people. Yeah, yeah. So these were, but when you infiltrate these worlds, and but in Kosovo, we bought guns, and we had, uh, and there's always a stage when uh, uh, the, the presenter, reporter, has to walk this kind of plank by himself, go into the gang, into the world, and actually walk down and be confronted with these guys and be alone with them. These guys who could kill you, and you're recording them. So, th- so that I had to walk with this guy who was a killer, who was a murderer, selling me all these arms. I was by myself. The camera was recording as he says, he says, Mac, people will die if this goes wrong. And the first thing, because you're in the journalist mode, you're thinking, you're not scared at first. You're thinking, did I get the clean shot on that? That's the very first thing. The second thing is you're scared. And I think afterwards, um, I found myself doing some work in Mexico. And afterwards, you've done so much of this work. And you're literally following the crime paparazzi in Mexico, Mexico City. And literally, you know, they have blood and gore on the front page. It's, it's incredible. And so many drug deaths there. Literally, I remember hitting a, crime, um, a scene and you're stepping over a dead body. And suddenly you're kicking a bullet, hits your shoe and goes off that direction. There's no CSI over there. You know, they don't bother. There's just too many. But I realized that, and I stepped back slightly from that uh, was because it kind of dehumanized you. You suddenly, I wasn't moved by stepping over a dead body. So then I had to, you know, step back and kind of say, right, let's put this into perspective. And you, uh, you gaze into the abyss. Yeah, yes. And you're thinking, well, I want to maybe live a little bit longer. But you know, it's things like family and other things, and you become a little more. You you, you recognize you had become dehumanized, really, um, to much of the horrors which you'd seen. So uh, now I stepped back and jumped into. Um, Instead of going undercover in these worlds, I went into and started doing access documentaries with major gangsters and criminal gangs. And I spent uh, eight to ten years with the Noonan crime gang up in, not, up in Manchester uh, and did a film for Sundance called The Very British Gangster. Um, and then I did a series of access films with other gangsters like Paul Ferris and other uh, major figures, people who want to talk. And it's, then you're spending time with them, but you don't want to compromise yourself, you don't want to see anything, you know, you're hoping that they're not active, and you're hoping when they drive you around there's not a body in the boot, and all of these various kind of health and safety issues that the office manager has to deal with. But you were seeing this as opportunity as well, well because think, this is what yeah, you did, investigation. Is, yeah. I think it's not only is it opportunity, but you're now living a kind of way, a world where you're, you're not just looking at a criminal, you're looking at criminals and the worlds they inhabit. So suddenly you're in, like, in Little Italy, so you're observing it as a criminologist, as, a, you know, as an access filmmaker, and also you're looking at the crimes they commit. So what's really interesting is seeing how they live their lives. So when we looked at Dominic Noonan up in Manchester, here was a guy who, um, bought, who set up his own police station. He ran an alternative parallel justice system. So if the police, had, if the community lost something, they would go to him, he'd get it back. So he would kind of, uh, a bit like the mafia in Little Italy, it's a bit like the IRA did in parts of Northern Ireland, they kind of ran their parallel justice system where the local police weren't trusted. So, yeah, so, uh, and uh, 
So I'm continuing a little bit in that vein now in the work that I do. So with the risks involved and mm. getting involved, like, you, mm. you know, you wearing a Chelsea tattoo, mm. I mean, that, that could incite violence, right? Like, that right kind here. of That kind of comes up in the case we'll be talking about yeah. tonight because mm. some people don't belong in some areas, yeah. not if they want to make it. And right? you were talking about the police were, you know, it, it, when you were talking about the mafia run and then people yeah. don't trust the police. And in the case we're about to yeah. talk about, yeah. there is a lot of distrust in yeah. law enforcement and their handling of this case. Yeah. So. But this case, which we'll talk about, and you guys can introduce, is a shocking, disturbing and a very much a live case. And it is, uh, it's extraordinary because it's uh, about the uh, 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 biracial uh, teenager who goes missing in Belfast, still a divided sectarian city. You know, we're now 25 years into the peace process. The city's transformed, amazing city, great place for tourists. But there are still parts of the city which, which are predominantly one uh, denomination or one culture and not the other. And so this, so yeah. what are we talking about? So we're talking about Noah Donahoe, the Noah Donahoe case, a young, amazingly <coughs> bright, talented teenager, 14-year-old quirky teenager, loved his basketball, loved his guitar, was learning uh, Japanese by himself and uh, loved his animation, and, and, but was super bright. So in his spare time, he was reading philosophy. Uh, he was, uh, I would say, you know, engaged with Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life, and that would become significant or not later on. But on Father's Day, um, uh, he... He goes off to see his mate as in a prearranged meeting in, uh, in Cave Hill, not too far away from his house, uh, from his house in, uh, in South Belfast. France. And this was just a couple of years ago. Yes, so this is basically 2020. And so basically, he drifts up, goes off, and then he is, disappears, ostensibly off the face of the planet, and is found in a storm drain five days later, um, five nights, so the following Saturday. So this is Sunday, 6 o'clock, Father's Day, and then he finds himself, um, body is found. The police track him down. He's traveled from South Belfast. So he takes a bit of a detour and he's due to meet his friends, but he doesn't actually go there. His phone is flat and he takes a bit of a detour. Now, this is such a strange case that there are key junctures on this journey and in this case, which each one you could spend like 10 hours just carving it out, as you know. So he takes this detour, and he takes the detour towards a kind of predominantly loyalist area of the city. He would be of Catholic uh, ethnography. His dad would have been American black. His mom, white, is biracial. Um, and he went to a, a predominantly Catholic school, St. Malachy's. And he take, veers right. Now, there is three and a half hours of video of this cycle route. And on the first part of the route, he has his laptop on in a rucksack. And then he goes down one part of the route and his rucksack is on. And then the next part, there is no video. And then another part of video he's seen without the rucksack. Now, that's his beloved computer. We don't know what happened there. All we know is that recently, uh, last year and just this week, uh, a woman and uh, two people were convicted for handling stolen property. During the time when he went missing, uh, the, his laptop was found in the flat of a, uh, uh, somebody with known drug problems, and they've just been recently convicted for handling that stolen property. Um, they tried to pawn it off. And they, stuff, the, yeah. the traditional stuff, yeah. right? Now, the, the story was that they had found it, the laptop, and did what lots of drug addicts do, or people with drug problems, they go and get, you know, try and turn it around. So the two people have been convicted for handling that. So that's one part of the journey. Now, we don't think there's any link between this part of the journey or whatever, this nexus, this little chapter, 
and what was to follow later on, which is extraordinary. So he continues his journey, but he takes a detour to the loyalist area, the predominantly Protestant area of the city, which a city, part of the city which he would never traditionally go, because although the peace process didn't play, it's not, you know, you know, with teenagers on both sides of the divide, you know, some Protestant young boys are vulnerable to Catholic boys taunting and beating them up and vice versa in, uh, when they cross those, those uh, various lines. But more so, that wasn't part of his plan. Wasn't part of the plan. Yes. Not on his way home. Not on his way home. Not away He was a reliable homes. kid. He said he was going somewhere. That's where he went. And all of a sudden, he doesn't. So, was he t- so he takes a detour, takes a change of route, completely out of character, very odd. Okay, that's the first thing. And his laptop goes missing. We don't know. And to be happens. clear, we're knowing, we're, we know what happened somewhat because there are CCTV TV cameras everywhere. cameras out of hundreds that yeah. the police pull. Right. From. And so the police had to pull so footage. They, yeah, from... they, so they've tracked it all down his route. Right. So he goes to the, uh, from the south of the city to the north of the city. There's some suggestion that he's seen close to the north of the city, uh, off the Omar Road, and, uh, and um, he falls off his bike. Uh, there was some suggestion he banged his head, but we now understand he didn't really bang his head. I've seen the bicycle helmet. It doesn't seem, appear to be damaged, but he certainly fell off his bike and was seen, didn't seem to be too distressed. Picked himself up again, and then he goes towards what's called Northwood Drive or Northwood Road, that direction, a small you know, residential area um, in the north of the city. And he, uh, in the first part of the video, appears to be cycling quite frantically. And then all of a sudden, uh, there is video of him cycling, and we lose CCTV contact. The next CCTV contact sees him cycling furiously naked. And then in a very traumatic, he abandons, the bike is abandoned, and he disappears and is never seen alive again. And his phone and other belongings are kind of, yeah, around yeah. So his area. so his clothes are found abandoned in some in in various places outside one of the houses. There, various witnesses have said they saw a young boy cycling naked. Some of them have said, uh, and a number of them said, which in a slightly curiously said they thought this was a kind of Father's Day prank. You know, I mean, I don't know of Father's Day's prank, but I it was just, I I know that I would have been a little more than alarmed if I saw a naked fourteen-year-old going by, and he wasn't he wasn't like. A fourteen-year-old who looked like he was eighteen. He looked like he was a very skinny young yeah. kid, and all this stuff. And, and there was a witness who said when he fell, he left his jacket behind, and she was surprised by that. Yeah, like he seemed like he wasn't even concerned about looking for the jacket. He was he just got back up and left again. It's almost as if he was running from something. Or yeah. it could be that he just wasn't in the right state of mind anymore. Yeah, There's I mean, lots of re- we'll get into it. Yeah, but. I mean, it's, it's it's so curious. There are so many different chapters to, to all of this. So he goes there, and he's and the so behind North this Northwood Park, behind Northwood Road Park and Linear Park, and there's a storm drain there. And the the police's version is that he's found at the end of the storm drain, um, uh, 900 meters away. And most locals don't know where the storm drain is. I've been there; it's really difficult to find, even if you know where you're going. There's not a chance. Fiona, um, uh, Noah's mom, who just got off the phone to, there's not a chance uh, that uh, he knew the area, would have known where to go, you know, and actually, and it's really odd, because if you were to take the trajectory that he abandoned the bike, went behind some houses, entered some, some parkland, and the, the storm drain is really sharp right. Now, if you're, and if you're going up, it's, this was a reason, still in the pandemic, quite sunny, 
you'd, you'd expect him to run uphill. But, you know, uh, if you're to follow the police narrative that he would have then turned right, went into a storm drain, which had been checked the week before and had been locked, uh, but the police believe now that it was open. He went in there and made his way down there and s- spent five days down there. But obviously they believe he died particularly within 24 hours and believe he drowned. And uh, then the body was found. And the, so what happened? Was, did he have a psychotic episode? Uh, was there third-party involvement on the second end of his journey? You know, there doesn't seem to be any connection between the loss of his laptop and what happened at the end. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be. And like we discussed before in our research, often if you're a victim of one crime, it makes you much more vulnerable to being a victim of another crime, often unconnected later on at another time and sometimes on the same journey. So here he is, naked. And you think, I've seen the footage, and it is harrowing. Yeah. It's just the vulnerability of this young child, and he seems terrified, scared. So what was going through his mind? And a statistic I just read about was most of the time mental illness rears its ugly head at around 14. That's about 50% is at 14. But that's usually, like, to me, I think, well, if you have ADHD or something, like, you're just kind of struggling with it. Do you have a mental break, though, that you have a complete loss of, you know, reality? I think, I think and, and normally, I mean, if, he's, if you're to take the police line, a psychotic incident or you know, <clears throat> even preposterously, I think, suicide, in the end, I think it's probably going to be kind of misadventure that may not be the full answer to it. But there are so many questions. So mom, Fiona, hugely determined advocate for her beloved son um, and much respect. And she's invited me and a couple of other experts into support. And she's very supportive of your work here in in covering the story. She says he had no history of mental health illness. He had no history. He was incredibly, you know, engaged school. He was hugely respect. There were no red flags around him at all in relation to mental illness. Right, and wide-ranging interests, and there's video, you should watch it, of him playing the guitar. Yeah, and he's a fantastic kid. And so there's nothing which would suggest that. Now, we know it still happens, but still there was nothing to suggest that. But it's, it's very odd. I've talked to child psychologists who say, mm, kids like this don't really rush to the darkness. They much more rush to the light. I mean, at that age, and he was always afraid of the dark. So... You're also, the police narrative is that he ran and went to hide or go to a storm drain, and this is into the dark, and this is, you know, it's a really odd thing to do. Why, why wouldn't he run home to safety? Why wouldn't he run home to a familiar place? Yeah. And but then, why the storm drain? That's yeah. what really doesn't make sense. Like you said, I mean, the witnesses have described it as not really being apparent. So how does he end up there? How does he end up there? So it's, there's so many questions. So in the end, I decided, right, like, come in and support the family. So I'm going to start from the science. So, okay, the police narrative is that effectively he was dead for five days. And so he was found on the Saturday morning. And I would say the, inqu- the autopsy was done at 3 o'clock, around 3.15 on the Saturday. And at 5.15, he was now at the funeral home being embalmed. Now, that seems to me a little unseemly haste, right? Seems to be, right? We know the backdrop of this is that Social media, this was during what they call the silly season, the marching season, the height of tensions in Northern Ireland between the two cultures. And um, 
so they're very used to it, this tensions being... And social media was suggesting that, oh, maybe Noah was killed by loyalists and by Protestants. His body was at the bottom of this. And inevitably, on any issue in Northern Ireland, there still is a rush to a sectarian side, you know. And there's no evidence of any of that. And that was very problematic for the police. And, and for the politicians in Northern Ireland, this is still a reasonably fragile peace process. I mean, it's, it's a, an amazing peace, and congratulations to everybody in Northern Ireland. But it's, it's a little fragile. Do you think the police were trying to stay away from that theory? I absolutely think they were absolutely desperate to say that nothing to see here, even while he was missing. In the, in the Wednesday when he was missing, they were saying nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And it was complete. It was basically, in many ways, I think the overall arcing thing is that what we do know, in my view... As an investigator, I think that the that the police investigation and the or the investigation for Noah was sacrificed on the altar of Northern Ireland peace. So I think they're by, trying to protect the public in a way to protect the public. Right. And there was because and how do we know this? Well, one of the big headliners in this is that is that in in the investigation of this, for, there'd be a coroner's inquest now in November, and the coroner's all these powers. But normally, a missing kid, it's a standard thing. It happens tragically, every community, every country across the globe. And, um, but what is extraordinary about this case is that, um, what's extraordinary about this case is that uh, there are uh, close to 400 PII documents, public interest immunity documents. These are documents which the police and the coroner um, have, police have asked to be excluded from um, the purview of the public and to be with, excluded from the family over a mysterious death, like yeah, like and, that's a little. I mean, weird. this is like the te- this is terrorism. This is international secrets. This is MI five, MI six. No, it's a fourteen year old Noah Donahoe who's gone missing, and it's like I mean, I talked to you know the family, and they said it's just extraordinary. Is that if this did not involve some kind of odd behaviour, why would the police now? You know, as if the case couldn't get any weirder. Redact everything. Redact 400 pages, right? And, and um, so, so that's really strange. That says to me there's something, every time you turn on this case, you know, you want to shine a light in it, but everybody's covering it up. And, and I think there is a motivation about the peace process. Maybe they, ta- they talk to loyalist gangs and, 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 uh, and ask, listen, do you have any information? Like they would do with criminals. If a kid, somebody went missing, they would go to the underworld and say, who's missing? Can you solve this? But for me, it's where the science rests. This was, he was found in an area where sewage went. It was, a sewage, some, it was a storm drain. Where the body was found, you had some brackish, which is salt and fresh water coming up. You had fresh water going down into storm drain. You had also some sewage coming in. So this was murky and dirty. Also, the, the flow, there were storms. So the body in there would be bashed about and beaten to hell with the coarse concrete inside. But moreover, there was no sign of insect predation after five days and no sign of rodent predation on the body in any respect. There was some damage, water damage to hands and feet, but nothing like the damage you'd expect for a body that had been there for five days. And that, to my mind, is the biggest question. You know, if the body was in that condition, and I don't think in any other you know, place on the planet, in a sewer come storm drain, you know, close to the port, with the rats for some reason, and I've talked to Fiona about this, it's a difficult area to say, listen, there's an issue here. So if the body had been there and was untouched in the way it has, that raises the question of third-party involvement. Because I, as the science rests now, I don't, it's inconceivable to me that the body could have been there for five days 
uh, without insect predation or rodent predation. Well, you would think this is where you need to have an expert come in and actually say, we'd expect to see this if the body had only been there for, say, one day. Yeah. And what's, what's the group we have in America where the, the body farm? Yeah, where yeah. We put bodies out in the same environment that mm -hmm. the victim was found and judge the predation and judge the you know, decay. Why not do that in this case to see if there would be it wasn't just even that, though. Yeah. I mean, some people have said, why didn't they actually test the fluid in the lungs to see if it matched the fluid that he was in? Well, they never took a water sample of the water in, in which he drowned in. And I think it's shocking. But, he, but when they... I don't think it's shocking at all. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know. You, I know it's, it's just shocking incompetence. And yeah. it's like, you know, I mean, the other thing is, so, so kid goes missing. Yeah. Still no answers. And even when you think you presume an answer, a good investigator would always pursue because one never really knows. Missing child, difficult area. They just, it seemed they, they had uh, Clive Driscoll, who solved the Stephen Lawrence case, a real signal case here in this country, one of the most foremost detectives, murder detectives in the UK. As he told me, listen, quite clearly the police decided upon that the, uh, what had happened because it was a convenient and they decided every, they weren't really interested in much after that. Uh, they obviously would contest that. They're big boys. They can fight their own corner. But that's, that's what he says. But I, I say this, right? So when his bicycle was found on the day afterwards, it was brought back to the police station. And in the notes and disclosure the family have got, um, allegedly, or I'd heard randomly, um, uh, that the bicycle was not tested for DNA because it was left out in the rain and therefore not... Uh, it was not practical. And you're thinking, a child's gone missing, a dead child's arrived, even if you thought... Now, we know that there was... Fiona said to me, there's been no DNA testing, forensic testing, on anything from Noah. Now, I had thought there had been some, but she says, no, the bike, you know, the helmet, all the things have been returned. And I'm thinking... Wow, that's that's quite a presumption. And they haven't found his body yet, so he could have been kidnapped. Of but course. they're not yeah. doing their due diligence. And, and they brought, I mean, to give the community credit, uh, and I'm not giving the police credit, as you can imagine, um, you know, they're hardworking, but, I mean, you know, uh, there's no malicious, mal malice in the police. I, I, when I criticize the police, and I, I help train police officers in, in university courses, but, you know, I call you out... You don't need malice when you have incompetence. Inco you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The result is the same. No. You don't DNA... You keep the bicycle outside, and that is a, that's good policing. No other DNA testing. The kid's still... The beautiful young kid, who's a, and it's all over the newspaper. It's all... He's missing, and, and then they take out three, 4,000 people are out marching in Linear Park looking for him, right? And ostensibly, which is great, and it shows the community out in support, but this is a potential crime scene, yeah. right? And you're thinking, you're all over this, right? And so, the, you know, if this was a crime scene, you, you're thinking, can we please get the professionals in? And it's, um, so there are so many questions here. And we know the police, PS and I, have brought in a specialist police officer from the City of London police here to examine their work and obviously give them a tick and say, listen, well done, yeah, right. fellow police officers, fantastic, well done. A couple of issues here, and well done. And, and as Clive Driscoll would say, and, you know, is that you know, there's a long history, with due respect to the inspector from the City of London Police, but there's a long history of other police forces coming in and clapping other police forces on the back and said, you did everything possible, fantastic. The family have gone to, I think, a much more reliable arbiter, which is the PSNI, which is the Ombudsman, uh, which is in Northern Ireland, 
because of divided society, they have an, an ombudsman, a police ombudsman, who will review the complaint. And the family's complaints are long and substantive, and I'm quite convinced that there will be a huge disparity between what the ombudsman will find and what the PSNI's own kind of um, reviewer will find, you know. So. Do they have, the question though, do they have access to what's been redacted? Oh, uh, I don't think they will have access. The only per- people who will have access to what's been redacted will be the uh, coroner and the PSNI. Now, there, is a, there will be court challenges to that, um, and the family's lawyers are fighting hard and say, listen, can we see the material? So what do we think that material might be? Well, they might be talking to ex-loyalist leaders uh, and, or terrorists or criminals and saying, you know, where are these guys threatening them? If this body is in your community, cough it up or else. We yeah. don't know. Sensitive names, sensitive uh, testimony. Yeah, all kinds of things all there. Kinds of things. But, but without, without, you know, with all that being redacted, how are you supposed to properly investigate this, properly review it? Because well, it might just turn out that they have the narrative now. Yeah, by but, by yeah. lining stuff out, just saying, here's what you got, wouldn't a lot of people end up with the same well, well, theory? Well, here we are. We've got a... The interesting thing is, not only was this a young Catholic boy who was found in a loyalist area, it's a red flag in terms of the political sensitivities. This is a biracial boy, and this was at the time, obviously, when you had all the issues across the states of young black men being killed and shot. And, and, and the one thing we always ask for is that shine a light on it, transparency, open up, yeah. don't close it down. But I think the police force in Northern Ireland, which has long been criticised and has opened up and changed, it still is stuck about 10 or 20 years behind, you know, the, the community policing here. They will say not, but yeah, they would. Uh, I'll, I'll say, you know, they have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And I think if you've got a, 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 a case that is so disputed, and there's so many kind of you know challenging issues and concerns about it. You really got to, in a divided community, shine a light on it. Don't start closing doors. And I think um, the family are distraught. You know, they are ruined, and and uh, it's uh, they have challenged the coroner. Uh, you know, in relation to PII, they had protests uh, all through uh, COVID, and they've been hugely passionate. And I think there's always a concern. Uh, as I said earlier, with everything in Northern Ireland, that if you take one side, it, you know, that you're t- it, it is, you're making a sectarian issue. This, I think, across the community, this is a case of a missing kid. I don't know what happened, but I do know this kid did not get the investigation he deserved. Was it bad policing? Was, was that because uh, they were worried about the peace process? Was that because he was biracial? You know, the, the one thing is in Northern Ireland, they, have ne- they haven't had this kind of race issue. It's the, the minority community is so small, less than 2%, right? And um, so, you know, uh, you're just wondering what, what role did that play, if any, in the investigation? So there are all these different strands, but it is, um, uh, we're fighting hard for, for the family, and the family have opened up, and uh, it's traumatic, you know, for them. The trouble is fighting the government, right? Mm. The government seems to have the utmost power and they don't even like being questioned. They're allowed to redact things. So mm-hmm. it seems like, what do you think is the key to breaking through? You may not get all the answers, but to have some kind of breakthrough on this case yeah, to I restore think, some trust. Yeah, well, I think, I, think, I, I think the family will be fighting a losing battle against for the PII. In fact, I said to Fiona, what's the number one thing you want to tell the guys that, you know, to fight hard for, to lift the redactions on that? That's what she said just, just five minutes before I came up to see you guys. But I think the, the, the real breakthrough will be the science. 
and we've got some experts working upon this, where the sci our pathologists will say, and they'll review the same evidence, um, likely, uh, that the state pathologists will have had and other uh, pathologists the coroner will have, and they will come up, and I'm quite confident that they will say that the condition of the body could not have been in that way for five days. So then, that's your starting point. So we couldn't have been there for five days. And we know the police were searching those drains for five days. We know that on the Thursday, the chief constable, deputy chief constable, and the senior police officer was there, and he was standing beside a drain very close, within 100 metres of where Noah eventually was found on the Saturday. So, I mean, there, these are bizarre co coincidences. This body was there for five days. Why did it take so long for it to be found? Why was the uh, autopsy done so quickly? Why was he embalmed so quickly? I mean, e the people said, this is a missing kid, right? The fact that they didn't even take the water, a sample of the water, as you say, it's the most basic forensic thing, is, is you, know, uh, you know, just a failure. One of the rumors mm. was that he was drowned in a tub, right? Yeah. That was a possibility. And so if they were able to check the water in his lungs yeah. and compare it, because like you said, how murky the water was, mm. I mean, they might be able to see visually that it didn't match mm. something. But again, they didn't even attempt. And this should just be matching things up. If you have a theory, let's, let's see yeah. you bolster that mm. with actual evidence, with science. Well, that... I think, well, yeah. I, think, I think we're suffering from the yeah. CSI effect, yeah, though, yeah. where yeah. we actually have this high expectation yes. when we call the Very police good. that they're going to do yeah. something. They're all we have, and, though. And, and yeah, that's the thing. What most of us luckily have not had to call the police and, and engage with them, but we think that they're going to take on our case, yeah. our problem, and one guy's going to be dedicated to it, and he's going to work 24 by 7 and not even go mm. home and talk to his family because he's working on my issue. And that is just not Well, interestingly enough, <laughs> they didn't allocate, the police force of Northern Ireland did not allocate and allow overtime for police officers on this case. And you're thinking, wow, I really couldn't imagine any divisional force not doing that. Particularly even, this was the case which was the biggest news that week. It was, they didn't allocate overtime. But just register this. I mean, I get the CSI effect. Yeah. But I'm not asking them, rocket science, but men in the moon. I'm asking them to DNA one item. DNA the bike, to bring the bike yeah. inside, to cover it up. The bare minimum. Bare minimum. No, we couldn't DNA, the disclosure says, we couldn't DNA the bike because it was left outside and caught in the rain. They had a reason like that for everything, for the laptop, the bike. They have reasons. Well, and of course, in the flat where the laptop was found on the Wednesday, while it was still missing, they went in and they retrieved the laptop because there was an attempted sale at a cash converter's uh, place. <clears throat> they didn't you know, engage and take the person in for interview then. She's recently been convicted for handling stolen goods. They didn't bring her in and they didn't uh, search the place or do any other DNA stuff. You know, and the other thing is, I mean, if this couldn't get any more bizarre, we know that the last message he received was on a blue tick Instagram account from Jordan Peterson. And so the police... Canadian Mounties have contacted Jordan Peterson's people. They've said variously uh, that we think it was a, either a rogue account or it may, uh, you know, they certainly um, have been quite, no suggestion did anything wrong, but it, basically we stood the family still don't know whether what was said in that Instagram message and, um, uh, and I don't believe the police force in Northern Ireland know what was said. They just know there was a message and um, we know that apparently, I think, Mr. Peterson was, he was in rehab in Croatia, apparently, at the time. But this, somebody, there was some 
Instagram message. Now, there's no suggestion of anyone's involved, etc. But to square a circle, because he was obsessed with the 12 rules of life and he was very um, engaged with philosophy and he really was interested in Jordan Peterson. So, this, so was there something in that message or was there something in, in the book which might have um, predicted or may have uh, precipitated his odd behavior? The bottom line is, you know, you want to close these cul-de-sacs down. What was said, we don't know. And here we are, nearly two years on, you're thinking, wow, two years, we, we don't know what happened here. I mean, for sake of argument, let's say he had a Let's mm, say he hit yeah. his head, was concussed, and went off on a tangent. Yeah. How do you get the family to believe that and accept that mm-hmm. if you haven't excluded out all the other variables here, if yeah. you haven't done your due diligence? Like, even if mm. the police are right and he did have a mental break, mm. they didn't get to point B or C in a proper mm. manner to make anyone buy yeah. that. Well, I think that the mom, Fiona, has always said, you know, if this was the case, it, you know, it's a point of closure. But please give us the information yeah. to make it a point of closure. But what confidence can they have if the most, if they know the most basic policing hasn't been done? And in the, they say in the area around where Noah was found, they say of the 95 houses, from from look at the disclosures and statements, they said 55 houses were not spoken to. You know, and they think yeah. that really. That, was that, there a law that says they couldn't go and do that? Or something. Uh, I didn't know if Ireland. No, had no, some no, weird no. I mean, the police. No, something. the police can knock on the door and like an ask. Knock for, and talk. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Of course, and they can do that, and it's like, and they're very happy to talk. And by and large, they've been pretty cooperative. And what was interesting was there was, you know, is, is that the community, when well, you know, we're working together to find answers. I don't blame the community either. I'm. What I blame is the police, which is supposed to be, you know. Uh, uh, community force for not doing the basics and then of course congratulating themselves for saying no we've got a tick off it's great it's fine we're all fantastic you know the bottom line is if you don't do the most basic dna that, and this is a divided community and traditionally the catholic community in northern ireland they, they've had to call it the police service of northern ireland in, uh, rather than uh, royal ulster constabulary because obviously this is a divided community with a very unhealthy history the catholic community with engagement with the ruc so now this is a, a cross-community police force, but you're just thinking, okay, I don't care. I, I don't care if you're all Protestant. You just do the job. Well, their approach, though, they think they're holding the fort down. But the problem is now they've got Fiona and the supporters all riled mm-hmm. up. Question is, what if they had done their due diligence? What if they had tested a few items? I mean, would they have upset someone else? Yeah. Well, I think the, I think the difficulty, if there's no doubt and I think the family lawyers have said this, if there was, it was found out that there was a loyalist or a Protestant involvement in this young boy's death, that community would have blown up like a tinderbox, like a, the entire city. So we get that. So that's one policing social imperative, right? On the other hand, the family rightfully said, listen, if there was a legit, if he had a mental breakdown, if he had a psychotic episode, and if we can de- demonstrably show that, then everybody would be happy to genuinely kind of grieve, support, community, and, and slowly keep the best of Noah's memory alive and then and kind of and find new ways to support other young people going through this, these difficult times. And it was COVID, and people did reflect mm-hmm. and engage with the pandemic in different ways. But as I think, uh, as you both have said, is that where these most basic of questions are so elusive, now nearly two years on, you're beginning to wonder, really, are you kidding me? 
Are you kidding? You know, uh, no family can have confidence that the uh, that they'll finally get the right answers. If and all the opportunities for a lot of these answers have now evaporated. And that, that that's something I always say is when you are trying to solve a case or solve for X, you only have one shot because all the evidence is going to disappear. All the witnesses are going to disappear. So you have to do it right the first time. And in this case, could they even go back and solve for X and do it correctly? Or is that moment past? Well, I mean, you mentioned that, that one, uh, we had one person contact us who said he did prison confession to say that Noah, in fact, had been, um, somebody had confessed to him in a prison cell. Yeah, this uh, is something we had talked about on the phone, just mm -hmm. so people understand. So he had confessed, so this man had phoned up and we interviewed him and he confessed and he said, listen, a prison cellmate of mine while I was in prison said that he was involved in this, that they saw Noah, that they were on some pedophile hunting mission. They saw a young boy. They thought he was involved. They took him away, and then they realized they'd made a big mistake, and they, they, they he said, his testimony he relates was that the people who were involved had said that they had um, drowned him in a bath and then arranged for him, you know, to be the body to be got rid of, dumped, right? And, that, I mean, it's a preposterous story, the police, we gave the information to the police and to the coroner, they've rejected it. But, you know, in the constellation of everything else that happened in the story, it's, you know, it's likely to be true as, as not. Now, uh, the police have ruled that out. But what is interesting, it raised that absolute prospect of, you know, well, if he had drowned in a bath, we'd know the water he drowned in. And now we don't because the basic policing wasn't done. So it leaves open that question. And I still think that the science... Um, I mean, for the sake of the family, you want to believe there was no part, third party involvement. You, there's no rescuing the fact that poor Noah is not here and for the family. But you, we would all much prefer that this was a tragic accident, a moment, whatever. Nobody wants to think about it. But if that is a possibility and if that is what happened, then the family deserve one proper answers. But, but I think something which will remain elusive, a proper investigation. Yeah, we can't make them do it, right? So that's that's why we continue to talk about cases like this because yeah, they're not doing everything they're supposed to be doing. Well, well, and you're like you yeah. said, like the bare minimum. And, and I'm trying to raise expectations for people when you do have something terrible happen mm. in your life and you do call 911 or whatever the number is here. 999. Yeah, 999. Yeah. Sometimes you're not going to get the response. Mm. I mean, the lower expectations. I mean, it's just yeah. like sometimes you call to complain about your meal, like, oh, they messed up my meal. And sometimes you get a... But so. you can leave a one-star review for a meal. You right. can't leave a one-star review for the government. They you can on Yelp. He's done it. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think the re reality is, is that um, the police are treating this like a big corporation would do, or corporations used to do. So now corporations, they recognize if there's a, a big disaster, they're very quickly, quickly apologize, and they throw money around and they move on, right? The police, in, in, they're stuck in the 1970s. They just don't move. They're intransigent. They think that an attack upon them, it, it, and they've done so many basic failures, they think their only way is they must defend, defend, defend. And as Clive Driscoll said, is that, listen, it's so much easier as, an, uh, as a guy who was involved in some of the big um, controversial cases in the, in the UK and here in England. He said, listen, easiest thing is say sorry. And the victims and the secondary victims of murders and all of this, they're saying, okay, so now I'm not fighting the police. Now we're working together to find and fight for answers. But still Noah, uh, uh, Noah's family, Neve and, and Fiona, uh, Noah's mom, they feel as if they're fighting the police because the police haven't done the basics. And where they should collectively be actually fighting for, for justice and fighting for the facts. It's just an acknowledgement. Because yeah. we, we do all these wrongful conviction cases, mostly mm. in America, and 
somebody's in jail for 20 years, they're completely exonerated. But the new prosecutor's like, yeah, well, we're just not going to recharge them. And they'll never, like, admit any fault. They're like, we crossed our T's, we dotted our I's. They were convicted justly, regardless of their innocence. Mm. And it's weird because the family and the victims and the wrongfully convicted, they just want, hey, just admit you did something wrong. Mm. Like, just that's all we want. And we want the system to error correct. And it's easier because in the, in the States, there is a limitation on, I mean, on, on civil claim. So mm -hmm. actually, I think some of the police forces are, you know, you can't quite sue them for wrongful conviction. No. So it's a lot easier to, to say, sorry, it's not going to cost you. Anything. Well, a lot of me, it's I think it's the ego. And if you apologize, you say you're sorry. I mean, we, you know, in the states, we're having to see these district attorneys elected, mm -hmm. and they want the numbers out there. I've had 60 convictions in the last so many years, whatever. And we took dangerous criminals off the streets, and they're hoping everyone will see that and say, wow, that's impressive. I'm going to vote for that person. But P police in America have what's called qualified immunity, you cannot sue them civilly. And there are multiple Supreme Court. Uh, cases that set a legal precedent that the police don't even have a duty to protect you. If you're being murdered in the street, they don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird, like, it's very stacked in their favor, as much as they might not think it is. Well, he, yeah, <laughs> well here they have um, uh, an Osman ruling, which is basically um, where if the police are aware that you're under threat, your life is under threat, that they, ha they are required by law after several Supreme Court litigation to, in <laughs> to inform you that your life is at risk. Yeah. But something. something. That's where it stops. Yeah. So I've been reading the news in ITN. You in might my die. Past life as a newsreader, very bad newsreader as it, ha as it happens. And uh, um, the police knocking on the door. I'm thinking we're all coming up out there from Scotland Yard and they're saying, we talked to Mr. McEnany. Yeah, go ahead. They said, what's wrong? I said, oh, yeah, we, we have absolute firm information. Your life is under threat. It's a credible threat. Uh, we can't tell you where it's from. We can't tell you who's responsible. We can't offer, offer any rules for protection. And uh, that's it. See you. And I said, is there anything I protect? No, but no, but, no that's it. And I'm, you know. Uh, and so going that's when you go back to Russia and <laughs> buy the bazookas and the AKs with your... Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> you like, know. You, just, you go back and you're thinking, hmm. That's very useful. What's shocking is that in my role as a kind of part-time academic in criminology, I've come across cases where there are 14-year-old kids, you know, with difficult family backgrounds who are contacted by the cops and given the same ruling. Now, I'm an adult. I'm working for a major broadcaster at that time and backwards and forth. And you have 14-year-old kids been given the same Osman rulings and they're sent back in the community thinking, 14-year-old kids been given Osman in terms of, in terms of um, risks to their life and abandoned with threats to the life of their head, so it, it's a bit strange. But, you know, back, I mean, I will say, in relation to I am, it is so tragic that uh, this bright young thing, this kind of energetic, excited ball, bubbling ball of brightness, enthusiasm, and massive curiosity for the whole world, gentle creature, beloved by his school and his family, just disappear, disappears, and then five days later, found dead. And the, here we are, a couple years on, still... Um, no answers. Still looking for those answers. And, but you said the fight continues because Fiona's not giving this fight up. No. And she believes in her heart there's a reason why those answers aren't uh, you know, able to be read. You know, and I think she's probably, you know, she's, I mean, I think that the investigation was compromised by the peace process. I believe that they rushed to a judgment. Even while he was missing, they were saying, nothing to see here, tragic kids, you know, and it's like this. It's un unbelievable. You know, you must presume the worst. You must, you have to account for all possibities, but they squashed down any, any thought that this 
there was any third party involvement. And the family were there on the Wednesday in a, in a press conference with one of the, the senior police officers and, they, and the, they were saying, please know if you're out there. Now, he went missing in one small, narrow little enclave of the city. There was nowhere really to hide except underground and they'd been searching the place for three days solid and they find him in another two or three days later. And, uh, you know, you're thinking, you know, that they had decided that early on that on the Tuesday when they got the bicycle, they wanted to give the bicycle back to the family. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they want it, and, they, and the family said, no, we, we don't want it. Is the, would you not want to DNA that? I mean, what's, you went to police college in Hendon. You've been trained as a senior police officer. I'm just a, a traumatized parent and a, and a family member. What do I want with that bike? And, and then of It's course, not doing any good at home. Yeah, and then they give it back to them, and they take it back, and they leave it outside the police station. And, they, and they've handled the bikes, handled and now the bike. their fingerprints yeah, yeah. are on there, yeah. their DNA is on there. So the family wanted to hire their own private investigator and have the t- bike tested well it's already been tainted yeah now what the family what the family have got some some have been given back some clothing they've been given back the helmet so what we're going to do as investigators is that we've got the helmet and with the family and we're going to get it tested to see you know and uh, effectively x-rayed to see if it had taken any particular hits mm-hmm. if there was any fractures any kind of small internal cracks which might indicate that actually he'd taken a blow to the head which might maybe uh, or may not have impacted upon his you know cognitive abilities or or whatever and i I have a real quick thing to say a cousin of mine she works at pizza hut as a manager she was filling the back freezer and she bent down and lifted her head up and hit it on the handle of the freezer door not hard didn't draw blood didn't even leave a mark but she was so concussed that her entire personality changed for like two months. Mm. It's a thing, and mm. I witnessed it myself. Mm. Now, she didn't freak out and run outside mm. and mm. strip off her clothes, but she was a very go-getter, like very direct personality. And after that, she became very passive. It was just like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I just need to go lay down. Whereas normally she'd be like, get your shit together. <laughs> get, you know, and mm. it totally changed her entire personality mm. for like two months. Mm. Just hitting her head lightly on a door handle of a freezer so it's it's a plausible thing mm-hmm. i'm not mm-hmm. i'm not trying to make a devil's but, but, argument but if, for no it, no but, i agree yeah. and i think yeah. well then the police should have actually you know yeah. they should i mean they should i'd have thought what they should have got is you know there's still some of the video is a bit hazy they should have got top forensic um videographers in there to analyze every single frame and there's some of the world's best out there and, um, and and every single frame for an hour before and an hour and after amplified to see if absolutely. Else. But also, they should basically let's examine. He was wearing the helmet when he fell off the bike. Let's examine the helmet. Let's see the scratches. The family have got the helmet back. And you're thinking, really? You know, the family though didn't want it back, but they had it back. Okay, that's it. The, it appears from what Fiona's told me this evening. The only forensics done were digital forensics on the phone, and not all of those have been done. You know, I mean, I think there was initially they, the police had said they'd done all the forensics and then they came back and they were going to do some more. And they're thinking, well, I thought you did all the forensics, but now you're doing some more. And of course, so that, again, it's, it's not very inspiring, you know, and every time they dig deeper, they just are increasingly disappointed. But they have K, working with KRW, Niall Murphy, a top kind of human rights lawyer there, and they're in good hands. And so the coroner's inquest will come up in November. I suspect it will be delayed because of other legal actions. Uh, but we come back to this curious situation. If this is just a normal, bog-standard, troubled, psychotic incident kid who's gone missing and has gone uh, 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 misadventure in a terribly tragic way, 
why are there nearly 400 pages of redacted PII, top secret, internal police documents being hidden and being kept away from the family and the family's lawyers? And then they now, in a divided society, have to trust the police with this information, say, oh, no, you're the police. You say, we don't need to see it. We're the family. We'd, we really have a problem with you and the work you've done so far. And now you've got 400 pages of these secret documents. We've got to trust you again on this. And you're thinking, you know, and as, uh, as the family lawyers have said, that, you know, it's like what ordinary bog-standard missing children's case involves 400 pages of top-secret documentation? Well, the, the government can redact anything just like the same reason a dog can lick its ball. Because they can't. Yeah. It's just yeah. there's yeah. no real. Now that you put it like that, yeah, no, you, put it like just... that. you put it so beautifully. <laughs> it so beautifully yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, but you know, and it's like, uh, I mean, the family don't care how you put it; they just want the answers. You know, and uh, but it is, um, you know, I think for you know when you listen to the family, uh, and you've done this too with many many families. You know, when it's so raw and painful, but I think it is made ten times worse when you are fighting the police who are supposed to find answers, be working with you. And that is the most traumatic thing because, you know... You're too victimized. You, you are, yeah, and it's, it's actually, it's, it's by a multiplier of 10 nearly because you're thinking all your energies are so angry. Come on, find out, do this, do this. And then they're keeping secrets. Sec are they dirty secrets? We don't know. We just know they're secrets. And you're thinking, well, come on. And remember, in, as we said, in a divided society, the one thing which... It ensures an enduring peace and confidence, particularly in the forces of law and order in Northern Ireland, is transparency and openness. And then if you've got one of the most complex cases and controversial cases in modern Northern Ireland history, uh, and you're now hiding 400 documents, and one of the files is 200 pages, and you're thinking, what the hell could that be? You know. Something that was interesting is when we were reading and researching about this, the divided neighborhoods mm. and his, him being Catholic, whatever. That's just like a footnote in a lot of articles. Meanwhile, you've actually been speaking about it almost, you know, this entire time talking about the, the cultural divide there. And, but from the American point of view, that's just like a little footnote, like could have mm. been this and like not really yeah. well, I predominantly think it's a, a point. I, I, think, I think, listen, in modern day Northern Ireland, there's a sense that actually it's, you know, it's still a divided society. Yeah. It's a peaceful divided society. It has moved on and, and congratulations to the people of North Day. It's, it's, it's an amazing piece, which is, I think, a lesson to divided peace across the world. But it still doesn't mean it's still not a divided society. Yeah. There are not still issues. And I think when a, a young biracial Catholic boy goes missing in a loyalist Protestant area, right, it reaches the visceral levels back of the Did the other, the other communities, did they have anything to do with the loss and, uh, 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 and demise of our young boy? And that's the way it starts. And social media then blew up and it caused lots of damage. And, and, and yet on the ground... Both communities came out to search and, and to throw their goodwill out there. So you're trying to uh, kind of call for an open, honest debate and investigation to this without spicing up unnecessarily kind of and, and, and uh, lighting the flames unnecessarily and irresponsibly of, of a divided community. Because um, was there third party involvement? We don't know. I think the science will tell us that. Right. You know, and we all hope that there wasn't. We hope that there is a much more benign reason why these events happened. Um, and but for the moment, the answers are elusive. The police are, to my mind, still depressingly um, kind of 
incoherent in their investigation and their, some of their actions incomprehensible in the case of a missing child in the here and now. But, uh, um, you know, the one certainty is the family ain't given up anytime soon. Right. When you look at attorneys, you look at police and they say, we did what we were supposed to do. And you say, well, I disagree. But that's pretty much the end of it now. And that's why she's mounted this effort for justice. But I mean, that's really what we hang our hat on. You know, a lot of times we talk about cases that look hopeless. Um, the fact that Fiona is still out there fighting, she's got people on her side, uh, very capable people. It gives us some hope because we know that the story's not over yet. But you can't underestimate is that the power of international media and this podcast and getting the story out there because the, the you know, in Ireland and in here, we're much more receptive to criticism abroad of us. We can, sub we can subvert it here. We can manage it in Northern Ireland. They can handle it. But when outsiders start saying, I'm a bit odd, it's a bit odd that DNA, lack of DNA testing, what no DNA testing whatsoever in the entire case, um, you're thinking, mm, that's a bit odd and strange. So when the questions are coming from abroad and from the U.S. and from your Just stuff, from an outside point, from of, an view. Outside point of view, yeah. that's so much more powerful uh, than um, uh, many of the uh, protesters on the ground. So I know that they were delighted to be able to get an avenue to get the voice, to voice this program out there. And the, uh, the other issue is that nobody is speaking in Northern Ireland about, you know, uh, Noah's race. He's a biracial kid. What... Was that was he attacked? If he was attacked, was that why he was attacked? Was there an investigation? Did the police give him feel you know try and you know was there a racial component to the lack of police engagement or professionalism? Who knows? We know it's it's not unusual in this country in many jurisdictions where biracial or young black boys don't get the justice they deserve because they're not middle class and white. They don't get twelve million pounds from the Metropolitan Police to pay for Maddie McCann's investigation missing in another country, you know, all these resources being thrown at, you know, blue-eyed white uh, kids missing in other jurisdictions, and you're thinking, like, Ben Needham goes missing in Greece 20 years ago, the Metropolitan Police give a million pounds for that. And you're thinking, well, you know, the, the, those resources, can we not throw them back and, on a biracial kid missing in Belfast and say, we have the basics. Well, just here. the testing you were talking about doesn't cost that much. Yeah, great stuff, boys. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for coming out. <laughs> we'll just edit your applause in later. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, boys. And, and uh, on behalf of the family, listen, guys, thank you so much. You've been listening to Crime Conversations, recorded live at CrimeCon London 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk.